You're listening to Out of the Box with Rosie Tran. If you enjoy us, please go on iTunes and Stitcher and click subscribe and also leave a comment. It really helps us out. I'm here with Jacobin Ashley of thirdplace.com. How are you doing today? I'm doing just fine, Rosie. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. Great to hear. Um, so I'm excited about talking about your website, thirdplace.com. Um, why don't you tell my listeners a little bit about it in case they don't know what it is? Yeah. Um, the website is a reflection of myself, our team, and our interest to get more people out and active within local communities, within community economic development. Really, we want people taking leadership, um, taking stewardship of their local communities, seeing how they can improve it with built environment projects, building an edible garden, advocating for alternative transportation like safer designated bike routes, uh, you name it. So the website itself is a host of resources that they can use uh, to do that work themselves or partner with uh, organizations doing that same work. So is it kind of like a Kickstarter for um, nonprofits? Like what, how would you describe it for someone who's like a complete like, like numb nuts yeah. <laughs> and doesn't like understand anything about giving. Right, right, right. Kickstarter is a frequent comparison. And some people say that we are the Kickstarter of community development or community building. Is it nonprofits or just community outreach stuff in general? General. Okay. Right. So our clients are not only nonprofits, but also for profits, uh, large and small government agencies. And we also have individuals using the enterprise software as well. Uh, so all are welcome. It's a choose your own adventure. And really what becomes interesting is seeing how we can actually match the efforts of the individuals with larger organizations. Um, it can be a capacity building tool in that regard. So we like to think of it as matchmaking. So on the one hand, there are organizations for nonprofit that have resources, but don't have the local knowledge, um, don't know what the challenges are of local communities. On the other hand, we have smaller organizations for nonprofit that have really um, local intelligence, uh, but they don't have the resources. So on third place, they kind of these two different organizations kind of get a meet in the middle and do the good work that they purpose to do. So how did you come up with this idea? I mean, it sounds like a really great idea for someone who's interested in, like you said, choosing your adventure, discovering something that they can do for their community or their, you know, maybe a community across the globe, it looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, where did you get this idea from? It's really awesome. It sounds great. Yeah, the idea has uh, developed over time, but really the origin story, for me at least, began in New Orleans. I'm a graduated graduate, excuse me, of Tulane University. By the way, I'm from New Orleans. Yeah, right, huh? <laughs> and I love it and miss it. Yeah. And it, it's been, you know, a constant inspiration for me, that city. Um, and how I long were that, you in New Orleans? Um, I've lived there on and off for eight years in the aggregate. I mean, your love of New Orleans is the love that I share too. I mean, I've moved away two or three times now. Obviously, I've moved back two or three times. So uh, I, it's never out of my heart. And uh, were you were you there during the the storm? I was not there during the storm. I was actually living and working in Washington D.C., and that was the trouble of it all. I was watching the devastation unfold, you know, over the internet. Did and your heart break? Absolutely. I can tell absolutely. you that my heart just absolutely broke. I was in the city at the time. I, I was living in L.A., but I went to go visit my my family, and um, I will defend Mayor Nagan to the death. I don't care what people say because the people were not there on the ground floor. Yes. Um, Bush totally forgot about us. Poor uh, Senator Mary Landrew drove in mm -hmm. her SUV to Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. banging on the door of FEMA director, I think Robert Brown, I can't remember his name, 
mm-hmm. and said, please send people to New Orleans. I mean, it was a war zone. And when Harry Connick Jr. went mm-hmm. on television for that, um, they had like a fundraiser, with yep. I think with you 2 or Sting. I can't remember who was on it. it all, they had all these celebrities. And Harry Connick Jr., broke down crying and mm-hmm. begged i mean you, there was nothing more sincere and i love harry connick jr and they had this image of the empty quarter and then they had another image of like you know people on their roofs and they just had harry connick yeah. jr crying yeah. i literally my entire body it felt as if have you ever had like a really bad breakup where you just feel like you were like in shock and you're just like your body is like in shock you're like are you, we're really breaking up what i wish i could say no but the answer is yes <laughs> and that's just how I felt. I felt like just someone was breaking my heart because i i harry Connick jr is such an icon to me he's the first you know concert i went to go see when i was mm-hmm. like 15 or 14 years i think i was 14 at the um sanger or the orpheum oh i can't remember mm. my memory's gone to shit mm. but um, i'm like what was this i don't know who's the mayor or who's canal the- street yeah. with you. <laughs> who was who was the fema director what happened <laughs> it's a blur um i did not have a hurricane at the, at the time i was not drunk i was sober <laughs> but i a la new orleans style but i i just my heart broke yeah absolutely. and so i can Im- anyone who has okay if you haven't been to new orleans you don't know what we're talking about so you have to go visit but as even if I was in LA or a different city, my heart would have broken. And I'm yeah. sure watching it in DC, yeah. you're just like, no, no. Yeah. And there was a little bit, you know, I was totally connected because it was the city that I loved and had family and friends that were there, but I felt disconnected too, because I felt like I couldn't help from that distance. Perhaps I could go to the local grocery store and donate a portion of my purchase uh, to the cause, but that didn't seem like enough. It doesn't feel like enough. It didn't feel like enough, you know? And, so I traveled back with my then girlfriend and uh, we, was this was this okay sorry to cut you off because I kind of went off on a tangent sure. was this the beginnings of the formations of third place or was this just in this general is, oh it is, was absolutely. okay so it had to do with Katrina absolutely okay this great is, awesome. this is the origin story so perhaps ooh, August 29th 2005 was when Katrina hit hit the Gulf um, I think I was back on the ground maybe November uh, mm-hmm. So just two months later, and were you working in DC? I was working in DC, and as at a place or as a consultant, or I was working in DC at the time. I was working for Four City Enterprises, which is a real estate development management firm. So you were able to freely go, or were you like, "I quit. I'm going I, to New Orleans." I quit. You I did? Quit. Oh, yeah. okay. No, this no, is no. great. I, I packed up my entire life. I packed up my entire life and said, "I don't know what this is all going to be." Um, but I want to help. And my attitude was, you know what, if I'm working in the field with a shovel, fine. If I find my way behind a desk, um, that's okay too, as long as I'm contributing to the revitalization, the rebuild of the city that I cared so much about. So I got on the ground with little to no prospects and just, you know, started flopping on people's floors and couches and seeing how I could help. Um, in a very real way, I just wanted to be in the eye of the hurricane and see what was going on. And, uh, you know, I stood in front of the house that I lived in for years in New Orleans and it was, it was still there. It wasn't leveled like it was, so it was many, uptown, right? Uptown. This was uptown. Yeah. So it wasn't devastated the way that, you know, homes in the ninth ward saw devastation, but it absolutely broke my heart seeing it shuttered and the water main out front was broken and water just openly flowing in the streets. I remember you could hear for miles just because the city was uninhabited. Um, just very surreal feelings. And I traveled down to the Ninth Ward, and I remember uh, just seeing children out playing. And, you know, 
the juxtaposition was these children playing and these foundations with no homes on them and armored Humvees with armed sol- soldiers sitting at the turrets. And I was just trying to understand, like, how, what country am I in? <laughs> where, where am I right now? Right? Where am I right now? And in conversations with people, you know, my heart was broken over the loss of so many memories that I had. But, you know, we were commiserating and over, you know, I, I found my 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 mother dead in the attic. You know, my grandparents don't have access to the uh, medical care and the medicine that they need. Um, you know, I worry about my children. They need to be back in school. I worry about their safety. All of my relatives, all my loved ones are scattered in this diaspora across the United States. There was real, real panic and real, real concern. And so it was very, very intense, if surreal experience. And so my, my kind of outlook to be open into how I could help, well, that landed me at Global Green USA, and it was just an unpaid internship. And I started um, building weatherization kits and helping them put on some, some town halls and community meetings there. And it was a start. But the initial light bulb, if you will, went off for me um, and thinking about third place when I was organizing one of these town halls. And I just saw so many people just violently, violently um, agreeing and disagreeing. <laughs> right? They, there, was, there was little consensus, but even the consensus that was there, people were, say, were, were just so heated about it all. There was just, we didn't know. We didn't know what it was going to turn out to be. We didn't know if a large real estate developer was going to come in and, you know, buy up all the land. See, that was something I I want people to really understand because a lot of people, unfortunately, in the U.S. live in very constructed cities, mini malls, shopping centers, you know, L.A. is a, a, what is it, mini, um, mini mall haven. New Orleans is a very historic city. The homes are hundreds of years old, beautiful, beautiful homes. Some of them have been you know, um, restored historic homes. And that was one of the major fears in New Orleans mm-hmm. after the, the storm was, are these giant corporations going to come in mm-hmm. and take the soul of the city away mm-hmm. and corporatize? Mm-hmm. And I don't think that people understand that it's one of the only strongholds of history left in this country. You go to Europe, you go to yeah. France and Paris, and Paris looks like Paris did in the 1600s. Yeah. Other than the fact that the streets are paved, you know, you look at the Arc de Triomphe, and it's the same um, building that was there when Napoleon marched, you know, down the Champs Elysees after his, def- you know, victory in the 1800s. So these cities are preserved, and we go in America, there's only a few cities. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of southern cities, Charleston is like that. Savannah is absolutely gorgeous. San Francisco still has mm-hmm. some of its heritage left. But a lot of America has been developed. And it's not the way it was. And I know there was a big um, controversy. There's a Walmart now in Uptown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that Walmart was wanted, you know, there was a huge controversy against it because everything in New Orleans kind of has this New Orleansy look and this historic look. And they ended up allowing it, but it kind of has a different look. It doesn't look like a typical Walmart. It's mm-hmm. brick. Mm-hmm. And it looks more, you know, historic. It's and more integrated. It's more integrated yeah. into the this. But I don't think people who haven't visited the city really understand what that means. It's really a part of the culture and heritage. It's kind of like 
you know, taking a street that has all these independent little mom and pop shops and just knocking it down and putting up a super center. (laughs) All of the culture is just sucked out of it. And, and maybe that is something that's happening with globalization. But when you see a city that beautiful, you just can't, it's so, if you have seen it or seen a city like it, you know, just imagine if you've been to Paris, the streets of Paris being, you know, torn down and putting up at McDonald's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. like just yeah. craziness. Yeah. It's yeah. absolute craziness. I mean, even to the point where when I was growing up there, um, we ha- part of New Orleans culture is the local coffee shop. Mm. People in New Orleans love going to coffee shops, of course, and sitting all day and oh, smoking yeah. cigarettes and reading the you know Times Picayune, which is the newspaper there, and just enjoying and chatting and studying. There's a huge coffee shop culture, mm. and when Starbucks started coming in, which was when I was in high school, um, and there was protest. Mm-hmm. There were major protests against Starbucks coming in. There was a couple, yeah. there's a couple Starbucks there now, but I know a lot of people that visit New Orleans, they go, why can't I find a freaking Starbucks? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you know, what is funny, what has me laughing now is third place is really, you know, in urban theory, we say that there's three places where we all kind of exist. There's your home, that's the first place. And there's your place of work. Then there's a third place, which is community. Oh, right? that's the and origin of the name. That's the origin of the name. And urbanists have really studied salons, coffee shops, beer gardens as these places where, you know, communities or members of community can come together and they can wear a number of different hats. It could be a place of work. It can be a place to get together with friends, to take out a date and to romance. Uh, but a common spot where people can, you know, you know, come together and just be, just enjoy. Now you see Starbucks really adopting this idea of being a community third place. But, you know, one thing that has us all falling in love with New Orleans is that coffee shop culture is just one of so many opportunities in New Orleans to enjoy these third places, right? It the is. The city is full of parks and public squares, Congo Square being most famous, and that is the, you know, origin of jazz. Um, it is a place where people, you know, come together to celebrate life and one another. And what had me falling in love with uh, New Orleans? So there was a real fear that that would go away. That it would go away. And I don't think people. I just really, if you've never been, you have to been. And I'm not being paid by the New Orleans Tourism yeah. Association. You have to go. I miss it on a daily basis. Yeah, it's the kind of city when I tell people that I'm from New Orleans and they've been to New Orleans their jaws drop and they go, oh my, I've only gotten one response. Oh my God, I love New Orleans. <laughs> it's kind of, you yeah. know, I i don't think I've ever met a person that said, I've only met one person that said something, that had something bad to say about the city and they had never been there. Yeah. They said, oh, I heard it's kind of dirty. Yeah. Like, yeah, if you go to the quarter after Mardi Gras and there's like piss everywhere, <laughs> you know, on like a, yes. I mean, it gets crazy. It's like, it and the, the joy that I get is when I take, people there for the first time it really is a joy of mine because people do not understand and then i'll take them there and they go oh my god you can do this oh my god you can do that oh i thought you could only do this in vegas i'm all we were the original vegas like yeah. in like the 1600s yeah. Yeah, people feel like you have to go to a vegas or some all-inclusive resort to enjoy life like take time out to have a drink you know laze about you know enjoy some music go dance have a three-hour extremely butter-filled meal. Exactly. <laughs> and somehow in New Orleans, it's always just been integrated into the, the lifestyle. Yeah. It is part of the lifestyle. Um, so that was a major concern is losing that kind of 
feeling. And there's also the big green movement that was going on and people were worried about, you know, the city shrinking for the benefit of being more green or sustainable. So people were really kind of, you know, worried about what the future was to hold for not only their their home, their their land, but also their cultural heritage. Um, and at that time, you know, <clears throat> digital tools were, you know, just coming out. Social platforms were just, you know, kind of coming out. And it seemed to me that there could be a better way for people to communicate, to foster or curate these conversations about how we could revitalize New Orleans than just simply shouting at each other at these, uh, <laughs> at, at, these at these town hall meetings and just cursing and being yeah, passionate. Absolutely. And, <laughs> you know, on top of that, I really realized that, you know, there were a number of different interests here. And one was of the, you know, the citizen and another was of the city officials and another was perhaps of these developers or, you know, local business owners or vendors and they all kind of speak different languages right and it was very very much a lost in translation moment that was going on between the between the three of them you know residents didn't care about you know setbacks or land use or (laughs) conditional use permits you know they just want their home back they want their children to be safe right that's what they wanted so that's when the like I said the light bulb first went off for me um, about uh, third place um, so. so at that time, you still didn't form the website yet. You were just no. volunteering as an intern. You're at this town hall meeting and you were like, okay, people need an outlet. Now, are you? do you have any history in web design or why did you think about doing a website? Um, so let's fast forward a few years. I kind of took the lessons learned in being in New Orleans. I stayed down there for uh, just about six months. So this was after you graduated from college, correct? This is after I graduated this was from just, college. You were out of college. You were in D.C. Mm-hmm. You saw the, the disaster. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I moved back, stayed for six months. And uh, towards the end, I put in my applications to graduate school. And then I matriculated to graduate school. And I was Down there or? In Los Angeles. And I was okay. studying urban planning. And... I still did not find myself kind of satisfied with, you know, the answers that were coming my way about the planning, design, and policy process. Is this something that could actually affect change there in that town hall meeting experience that I had? And my answer was no. Were you having nightmares about this town hall meeting to go in? <laughs> New Orleans was keeping me up at night. It absolutely. was? It was? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, again, these conversations about... You know, my house has collapsed. You know, my I had to find my mother in in the attic. In the attic. You know, the it thing was, that makes me cringe to this day is seeing those exes. There's still mm, some out there. The graffiti, yeah. The graffiti exes. So, for those of you who don't know, um, when the rescue crews came in, they would put exes on the door um, to mark. There was different exes. There were some that would mark that there was dead people that were yeah. found inside, or perhaps pets, or or gas pets, leak or and then there was exes to show um, that the house had been checked and mm-hmm. it was clear. Mm-hmm. But it's just kind of one of those symbolic, you know, kind of like the World War Two picture of that woman, you know, that it looks really um, decrepit, or the one from the Vietnam War with the naked child running from mm-hmm. the napalm. It became some iconography. It's it's one of those iconic images. If you kind of look back, if you don't know what we're talking about, you can Google it. Where you know they put their spraying these X's, and I to this day, my water meter clock doesn't work. It's off. He's Jacobin's looking at my clock. I have a New Orleans water meter clock on my wall, but it's broken. I was just looking at New Orleans iconography. I have some iconography <laughs> in my house. I actually that's where we record the studio because I'm that's why you guys need to click on the donate button because I'm on a budget. Um, I have some uh, beautiful tiles on the wall. The uh, 
what is it? The slate tiles. They, they sell slate tiles in the French Quarter. I don't know if you can see them. Mm-hmm. And they yep. have like artwork on them. And then I have a New Orleans. I have a couple Jazz Fest posters, but they're rolled mm-hmm. up and in the uh, closet mm-hmm. because I have not framed them yet. <laughs> and then upstairs, I have even more New Orleans stuff. I have a, um, a f- framed photograph of uh, the a Cafe du Monde. And then I have another picture from a famous artist but i can't remember her name off the top of my head right now so i have a lot of new orleans stuff i'm like a crazy diehard new orleans person i think anybody that spent significant time there (laughs) kind of is well i go back the thing that i love about the city is a lot of people think that um it's like this crazy wild place because you you know you can have open containers and when i was growing up there the drinking age was 18 not 21 and Mm -hmm. it was the only city and they have laissez-faire government which a lot of people don't know about as well and they go over they go uh, they have napoleonic law which is different than um federal law and basically the federal government gives uh louisiana special funding and then they kind of have their own like rules down there um and different laws and stuff like that that the rest of the u.s doesn't have to follow so we have our own special set of things down there and we have parishes instead of counties (laughs) so we're special (laughs) but and um and so people think that I would be this like crazy wild, like just, you know, cause drinking at 18 and, and I think growing up around the chaos was, a what, what grounded me mm-hmm. because when I went to college, I didn't go crazy like everyone else. Mm-hmm. I, I had been there, done that seen that since I was, you know, like 10, mm-hmm. you know, you go to one Mardi Gras and you're like, okay, I'm done with this. Mm-hmm. Not that, you know, so I kind of actually be, was more grounded be, because I felt like I had experienced that. And so people are also shocked when they find out from them because from New Orleans because they're like, oh, well, it seems like he'd be this crazy wild alcoholic. (laughs) Well, it's just an attitude down there that life is to be enjoyed. It's not as though you work for the weekend and then the weekend comes and you, you know, just explode in, you know, this party environment. It's not this grind that L.A. and New York and Chicago. I mean, when I moved down there, it was just shocking to realize that banks are closed on Saturday. (laughs) You know, or perhaps they close at three o'clock, you know, all these, you know. Some people get very angry about that. And I enjoy it because it's kind of like that European attitude of the, um, what is it called? The the siesta. Yeah. They have yeah. a siesta. Yeah. So, I mean, they place an emphasis on, you know, I need to take time to sit down and enjoy a meal, sit down and enjoy. You There's know, a lot like of enjoyment. Food. I went to an escrow office with my mom because uh, we were doing some real estate transactions and I was helping her with it. And... It was Jazz Fest weekend, which is why I came down. Mm-hmm. And we went to the office and, you know, everyone was relaxed. And they were playing music in the background. The ladies at the escrow office were like, oh, who are you going to see at Jazz Fest this weekend? What you doing, girl? You know, they were just like laughing yeah. and relaxing and, and they're enjoying. They were listening to WWOZ. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of my lasting <laughs> memories of New Orleans and how I try to describe it. I, I remember biking down Britannia. And uh, which is a very beautiful street uptown New Orleans. And this was when I had moved back post Katrina. And I was just reflecting on, you know, why I was down there, what have you. Um, The sun was setting in the background. I was biking down Britannia and house after house after house. I would not miss a beat. I could hear the broadcast of WWOZ (laughs) coming out of the doors and the windows of all these shotgun houses. And to me, that was just beautiful in that. You felt as though the city had a shared heartbeat. That's crazy. It was always moving to this local uh, music station that was broadcasting local musicians and trying to make sure that you get out and enjoy some live local music. As they that is say. the main thing. Everyone's always going out to see live local music, going out to support local bands, going mm-hmm. out to support. You know, it's not this corporatized. You, you know, there really is a brainwashing culture in America of just the corporatized music, the corporatized. 
you know, you turn on the radio in LA and every 10, 15 minutes it's Rihanna <laughs> or some other, you know, and I like Rihanna, but it's just the same thing over and over and over again. Whereas there, they're trying to discover new music. You can actually send in your CD to yeah. the radio station. If you're a young band. You and they'll play you. Get in. <laughs> And they will give you airtime, you know, just as much, put you right next to some of the icons of jazz from New Orleans. Absolutely. It's not programmed and then a person presses repeat. There are DJs. There's actual <laughs> DJs who will play your music and help yeah. you get fans. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's just that those DJs, you know, are the kind of, you know, the, the town criers, if you will, of New Orleans. And the music that they play really provide that that shared heartbeat. So as I was biking up Britannia, you know, reflecting on my time and why I was there, you know, having so many homes share with me that they wanted to have the same shared experience, WWOZ, getting out, supporting what is live and local. I said, yeah, that's something that I want to support too. So fast forward, you're in LA, urban planning, setting urban planning. And then when did you say, okay, I need to get this website up? Yeah, um, I knew that I wanted to do something, but it was difficult to think of what the product was, what the market fit would be, how to make money off of it so I could sustain the business and really provide some resources to those town hall meetings. Um, I met my co-founder again for the first time after I graduated from um, graduate school, um, and we had some shared mentors, some shared classes together. Um, so he was just a guy from out here? Yeah, he. you know, it's funny. He has actually grew up for a time in my hometown of Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Um, Kansas City, Kansas, Kansas or Kansas City, City, Missouri? Kansas City, Kansas. <laughs> um, and oddly, you gotta ask. You gotta ask. Oddly enough, we just have these weird shared experiences um, that helped us bond. And, you know, at that time after um, graduate school, we were really kind of reflecting over our dissatisfaction with the planning, design, and development process. He was working for an international design build firm and flying all over the world consulting on infrastructure projects. And he was sharing with me that, you know, he had just gotten back from Riyadh, of all places. And the airport that he was consulting on had just opened, but it opened at 40% capacity for no other reason than they had overbuilt. In other words, it was a vanity project, and he was finding that no matter how kind of design forward or perhaps lucrative the project or design is, um, it wasn't necessarily reflecting the needs um, and interest of uh, community members, people on the ground. So, you know, we were kind of bonding over that saying, like, what does that mean, right? If from my perspective, bottoms up, you know, the town hall meetings, resources weren't there. People couldn't get their voice heard, you know, in front of, you know, the government officials to, uh, you know, talk about how how to revitalize New Orleans. Okay. And from... <coughs> we okay then, Rosie? I'll edit it out. Okay. Oh, my God. You have water, right? Yeah, I have water. <laughs> I'm choking. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> this is a good thing about podcasting, editing out stuff. Right on. Okay. So let me let me just start with how I met my, my co-founder. I met my co-founder, Mike Colosimo, um, again for the first time after graduate school. We had some friends in common, some mentors, and even some shared classes. Um, and we were bonding over our shared kind of dissatisfaction with the planning, design, and development process. Um, and... He, at that time, was working with an international design build firm and traveling around the world consulting on infrastructure projects. Um, At that time, he had just returned from Riyadh, and he had just seen the opening of 
uh, an international airport, and the airport stood open only at 40% capacity. Um, and his realization or his insight was saying that uh, it's not enough to have something that is designed forward or perhaps even lucrative for you know whomever the stakeholders may be. Um, if it's sitting at 40% capacity, it's really not meeting the needs or wants of the people on the ground. And that was something that did not sit well with him. Um, so from his perspective, kind of top down, those with resources, those developers, um, they weren't meeting the needs of the ground or on the ground. And from my perspective, from that town hall meeting bottoms up, you know, I couldn't understand how we could get reach that fever pitch or find that right voice to, you know, kind of. Uh, uh, find find those people that have those resources um, that you know Mike was working with. So put it, so basically putting investors in touch with the people that really need them. Yeah, people with resources, with people that have are in touch with the local problems, right? So from bottoms up, for me the porch was too cold. Top down from his for him the porch was too hot. We decided <laughs> to meet in the middle, right? So we said, is this going to be a consulting practice? And eh, that's not really what we want to do. You know, how so you get- guys were just thinking to form a business together at first it wasn't even a business it was just a, a problem An that idea. we wanted to tackle we wanted more people taking ownership over their local communities whether that was an individual or you know uh, the local uh, coffee shop yeah right there's a piece of blight or an underused lot you know in my neighborhood i want to do something about it you know i'm a dog owner perhaps i can turn that into a dog park got it you know got my it, school ha- is being defunded and my child no longer has you know, can an art take, program or something. has an art program, yeah. right? How can I rally the PTA or the broader community to develop an art program? You know, why does this school, um, why, why can't it serve as a community asset or hub? Why is it only open during the week? Can it be open during the weekend? At three o'clock, why can't I just pick up my child? Why can't I also pick up some, you know, some fresh organic food from the edible garden that we plant on Saturdays and Sundays at this local school. Why can't we do more with the resources that we have at hand? So it's a place to maximize, basically it's creating efficiency or trying to create efficiency to fill needs that are in the community. Yeah. Community sourced needs within the community. If you see a problem, you know, let's give, use the tool to see if you can get the resources you needed to address that problem. And we really, you know, it started out as an experiment. Um, We were accepted into a startup accelerator in January 2012. What is the startup accelerator? Uh, Startup accelerator. The name of this accelerator was, uh, or is, Start Engine. It's located in Westwood, Los Angeles. And they are purpose to give startups the resources they need to exceed. And you, did you... Um, was it a contest or just it's a program? It's a program. There's an application process and, you know, you talk about, you know, what it is that you're doing as a business. You show whatever assets you have, whatever traction that you have. And if they like you, if, you know, you fit their portfolio, they're going to ask you for uh, perhaps a portion of your business in exchange for some equity. Um, and they will give you resources like not only cash, but perhaps legal advice, perhaps hosting or server space, um, access to, you know, people who have been there and done that, other local entrepreneurs, um, things of that nature. So it was a three-month kind of accelerated program and how you can take, you know, this idea and make a business out of it. Um, And, you know, the initial experiment was to say, okay, now that we're talking about people with problems with the communities, 
aggregating resources from the community, perhaps we can look at what others are doing in crowdsourcing, right? That's why people often compare us to a Kickstarter if, if it's Kickstarter for community development. It sounds like Kickstarter meets like a dating service. A little bit. We like to, th- <laughs> we like to think of a Kickstarter plus a little bit of Angie's List. Yeah, you're kind of like putting people together, right? right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and we initially wanted to see if we could kind of have a Kickstarter for enterprises because, Rosie, that was the second light bulb that went off while we're in the accelerator in our research. So there was multiple light bulbs. Oh, yeah. Well, inspiration is <laughs> always striking. Well, that's the fun thing about being an entrepreneur. You know, please do not get married to, you know, the idea. Right. It's really it starts changing and molding and growing absolutely. and taking a life of its own. It's about the vision. You know, I know where I want to go. We as a team, we know where we want to go, how we get there. We're open, right? And this second light bulb was really revealing to us. We found in our research that a lot of brands, big and small, were committing tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars each year in philanthropy or corporate social responsibility. And we said, hmm, if they're giving you know, to support affordable housing or financial literacy and we're or looking. beach cleanups, <laughs> and said, Okay, regardless of their motivations, perhaps it's a a tax write-off, regardless of their motivations, perhaps we can kind of reposition or pivot this, right? And if we are able to do that, we can kickstart, no pun intended, kickstart this community development that we would like to see in what was to be third place. And so we started to build out a a tool, which happened to be digital, um, that could serve as crowdsourcing for enterprises. And we initially sold it to Whole Foods, actually Whole Foods and Whole Kids Foundation. And they used it for a workforce volunteer program, meaning that it wasn't public, but it was promoted internally to Whole Foods. Now, that's no small promotion. They have some 360 stores across the globe. Um, And they were able to not only activate um, all of their employees, but they were able to find, vet, and activate um, I think it was around 120 local nonprofits um, across the globe in doing some sort of community service. Um, they really realized that they had a need to distribute messaging across their entire retail footprint, um, but they wanted to be very concerned and reflexive to the needs of local communities. So the needs of Venice Beach, California, is very different than the needs of you know South London. Yeah. So that nonprofit, that local nonprofit, re- really serve as the local fixer again. The person with resources, Whole Foods, was able to meet with the person with uh, the programming, that local nonprofit. And that experiment worked. It was a success. We're able to iterate from there, move on to the next experiment, the development of uh, development of third place. So how did you hook up with Whole Foods? Did you just call them? Did you have a connection there? Like, How did you go from having an idea to finding uh-huh. this corporate? Uh-huh. <laughs> we stalked them. We literally stalked you them. You did? Absolutely. So I want to hear about that. That's crazy. <laughs> we literally I want to hear about them. what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur. Yeah. So we had, a, we, had we have a friend... Um, who is kind of a local activist. He really does a great job. His name is Francis Delavecchia. He does a great job in organizing volunteer opportunities. For I just want you to know that you, your face lit up with evil <laughs> when you said we stalked them. Delightful, <laughs> delightful, <laughs> inspired <laughs> evil. <laughs> well, you know, I'm telling you, when you know what you need to do in order to get it done. And you're committed. And you're committed. And you have passion. Yeah, it was, it's kind of really fun and exciting knowing that, you know, nothing's really going to stand in your way, right? And having them say, yes, we see what you guys are all about. That's the validation right there. 
So this friend Francis Delavecchia, who um, is active organizing um, community uh, volunteer projects, he knew of uh, the director of Whole Kids Foundation. She was formerly the executive director, excuse me, former director of marketing for Whole Foods. Um, and he knew that she would be at a conference in Denver. Um, and he Did said, Did he fly to Denver? He said, <laughs> Let's go out there and, you know, pitch her and get it done. You know, Whole Foods was to us a great brand to work with. Their whole kids' foundation is purpose to um, build edible gardens in schools, um, provide uh, salad bars in schools, and educate the teachers about healthy living in the hopes that they're going to pass along those lessons to the school children. So we really liked what they were all about. Um, so we did it. The three of us, my co-founder, as well as Francis and I, we flew out to Denver. And, you know, of the thousands of people at this conference, uh, we were able to find this young woman and talked with her and then later dined with her. And uh, she understood our vision and, you know, the ha ha ha. She understood our passion. And I give her credit. She really took a leap of faith with, with us. Um, and I think that really speaks to her as well as, you know, the whole kids foundation, what they're all about. Um, but also I think that speaks a lot about you guys. And I think it's important to know because a lot of people, you know, take something as a rejection or take something and they say, Oh, well I'm an unlucky person here. You guys created your own luck. Absolutely. Which is very, very important in entrepreneurship Absolutely. and business and in life in general. I think people need to realize that you can't just sit there and say, well, I'm unlucky or things aren't going to happen to me. It's like you guys found out where mm-hmm. a decision maker was going to be yeah. and you created your own luck. Yeah. And I have a feeling that had she not been interested, you guys would have created another situation in which more luck would have come your way. Yeah, absolutely. Again, you know, it's just all about the vision and how we get there. That's a different story. <laughs> you know. But you guys took the risk. I mean, a it lot of people would just say, oh, well, why don't I send her an email right. or why don't I, you know send a letter Mm -hmm. and that letter email could have never been you know looked at or opened but somebody that actually flies out there you know meets face to face that's a huge risk but obviously you guys had a huge reward yeah i mean i'll juxtapose that uh against uh the most recent meeting that i've had with this uh this young woman it was actually here in la she flew in to take part in a panel discussion at the milken institute called hungry and obese it was really a conversation about how as Americans, we are both the most obese country as well as, you know, the hungriest. The, you know, children within uh, our own communities in South and East Los Angeles live in food deserts and don't have access to fresh organic food. Instead, they have access to 7-Eleven. So it's a challenge that Whole Kids Foundation is uh, really trying to address. And I remember after the panel discussion... Um, she and other panelists um, were really swarmed with attention and people thrusting their business cards at her saying, I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to do this, I want to do that. And I remember I just stood there in front of her waiting to catch her eye. Finally, she saw me and I saw her and we just hugged. And she just said, let's get coffee. And that was it. She said, you know, I want to know what you guys are up to, how I can you know, continue to collaborate with you guys. And I was just sitting there hugging her saying, thank you for taking a chance on us. And she, I So think what do you think it, it was about you guys that stood, up, stood, stood out? Was it the energy? Was it the intention, the passion? Because you're saying that people were like thrusting themselves at her trying to get attention. What, do you think it was the stillness? Like, what do you think the stillness, which may have come off as confidence? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what do you think it was? that? I think we found a way to stand out. 
both mm-hmm. by our model as well as our willingness to fly cross country to, you know, make ourselves known and let her know that she needs to be using our product. Um, so it helped us to continually like stand out in the crowd. Um, and literally, literally stand out <laughs> in the crowd. And, you know, it was an interesting moment for me in which I was sitting there saying, do I need to do anything to grab her attention? And I did it. Um, and that was really, really kind of a, uh, a validating moment and pleasant experience. Um, so, yeah, that's awesome. Wow. What an inspiring story. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the progress of third place continued from from there how long has the company been been around so since january 2012 when we entered the the startup accelerator okay so Um, you guys are still growing and growing yeah it's about yeah still growing and growing and hopefully for for some time now um it was it was interesting to see how the product was going to evolve after that initial experiment with whole foods whole kids foundation an enterprise tool using crowdsourcing we saw that it worked um that was great um, and, you know, from there we said, okay, how can we get this in the hands of smaller organizations, those that are on the ground that know these challenges and really need, you know, crowdsourcing as a capacity building tool? So I went on your website and it mm-hmm. shows, you know, I can connect with different um, organizations and different um, projects and stuff like that. And there was a map of the U.S. If I wanted to find something, you know, I say I have cousins in China. Sure. Is, are there projects up there all across the world? There are projects throughout the world. Uh, I wouldn't say that our penetration is such that you could blindly enter a zip code, a transfer, <laughs> a, a country, and find a project that is active. Um, and that's okay. I mean, it is because we are, you know, a younger organization. And, you know, the, when the opportunity comes to have a project in, you know, a Riyadh, for example, you know. Well, if, you, if you're in that local. area and you... So, so say I'm in a remote area mm-hmm. and I want to create, um, something in my community. I want to create a farmer's market. Mm-hmm. Maybe I live in an area where, you know, the grocery store is far away, but it's like a rural area. So I know there's a lot of farmers around and there's just nothing. So I want to create this farmer's market where people can come and buy local fresh produce and stuff like that. Um, I can just go on the website and create the connections, right? Yes, you can. Um, you know, it is dependent largely upon your own promotion. You know, it's kind mm-hmm. of the 80... 80- it's like, that's like Kickstarter too. Absolutely. People have to promote their projects. Yeah, and I think those of us that are around the world of crowdsourcing, we try to emphasize this point. It is the 80-20 rule. The vast majority of your donations are going to come from your grandmother <laughs> and come from your <laughs> business colleagues. That's just the nature of the game. Um, what has been kind of proven out is that it's a small percentage of folks that are on Kickstarter or Indiegogo or other crowdsourcing platforms that are just looking for other cool, innovative projects to give support to. And a lot right? of people want want to donate money to stuff like that. You know, I think that um, with the way our society is going with the internet and TV and transportation and people in their cars, a lot of people feel disconnected. Yeah. And I know that... Um, People are spending hours and hours in the car and not really getting to know their neighbors. Yeah. I know most of my neighbors and I have a friend who was completely shocked. He's like, oh my God, everyone knows you. Well, I walk my dogs. I have two dogs and I walk and I always say hi to everyone. I'm like, oh, good morning. Good morning. Yep. And I actually um, made it a note to especially say hi to people 
who seem like they don't want to say hi to me. So I used to, this is a side tangent, but I used to have a homeless guy that lived on my corner mm. and he just looked super mean and angry, like really, really angry mm-hmm. and really mean. And he's the kind of guy that I'm sure if my, my mom, she's like very sweet, but she's kind of judgmental. She would probably be like, stay away from that guy. He's dangerous. Right. He looks crazy. So every time I would walk by with him, to him, I would make a big, big smile and say, good morning. Mm. And he would never smile back. And I think about two or three months in, I like kind of cracked him. <laughs> yep. Yep. And then he started smiling. He didn't speak English very well, but he started smiling and nodding. And um, uh, there's a couple like angry neighbors, too, who are always like, I, you know, come out and yell at me and make sure I'm cleaning up after my dogs, which I do because I'm a crazy good dog owner. Yeah. And I and every time they yell at me, I used to get mad. And now I just always smile at them and make sure, oh, are you having a good day? And sometimes I even stop and try to have a conversation with them. Yeah. Because I think people are really disconnected and they need that connection. And that's why I think websites like Third Place and avenues like that are really, really, really important. Yeah. People are really craving. Because people want connection. People are craving for it. They have an appetite for it. Not only to get to know their neighbors, but have a shared bonding experience. Well, we're social creatures. We, mm-hmm. If you study the history of man, we are tribal, social. Mm-hmm. We're, we used to live in tribes. And I think that's mm-hmm. another disconnect is we're not supposed to have nuclear families. We're supposed to have giant families with yeah. cousins and uncles and brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And that's where the phrase it takes a village to raise a child comes from. Yeah. Because it literally used to take a village. Yeah. You would have your kids running around and they would be your kids. But they would also you would have aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews and neighbors. Yeah. And we all lived in this shared place and we all had this communal energy. And I think that's something that's lost. And I think... You know, going to a community, creating a community garden together, creating mm-hmm. a project together, doing something together. There's an awesome documentary. I've talked about it before, not on my podcast, but on um, Kelly Carlin's podcast, uh, Waking the American Dream. I talked about it for like 10 minutes at least called Happy. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the documentary? I know of it. And they talk about how um, external happiness, in- internal, external happiness and, you know, the different rewards you get in you know, mm-hmm. external happiness, money, um, uh, looking good, having a good image, stuff like that. Yeah. Internal happiness. One of the number one things that brings people happiness is shared communal um, activities where people feel like they're making a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And it actually creates more happiness. You know, everyone says, oh, well, you know, er, you know, money can't buy happiness. Yet we're running on these financial treadmills on a daily basis mm-hmm. or people in general are trying to get more money, get more money, get more money when mm-hmm. just maybe going on third place and working on a project. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> could bring 20,000 times more happiness and, you know. And that's the fun challenge of it all. I mean, I, as much as I love, you know, working strategy and bi- building digital tools, you know. And urban planning. You're like, I want to go out there and help people. Yeah, right. <laughs> at, the, at the end of the day, I want to put my hands in the dirt. With the shovel. Absolutely. Which was your original Absolutely. light bulb. <laughs> right? So, I mean, I, well, I see it all the time, and it's fun trying to connect what is online to what is offline. So many services online are ex- experiences that are only going to happen online. But really trying to get people out and active in local communities, meeting one another, having these shared experiences. You know, you see it when people put their hands in the dirt. That is a bond that, you know, they can't get anywhere else. Right. I like that you're using new technology for the greater good, because I think, you know, there is this emphasis on, um, especially now with the holiday season, with the Mm -hmm. crazy shopping and the buying, you know, the Amazon.coms and all the, I mean, I know I had at least 50 junk mails Mm -hmm. in my inbox for Black Friday sales and Mm -hmm. other things like that. You're actually using it to make a difference for the positive, Mm -hmm. not just 
you know, this mindless internet, Facebook addiction, mm. whatever people are doing. I think that's great. And I'm not being paid at all by Jacobin <laughs> <laughs> to feature his website. But please speak up. if you <laughs> I am not being paid. I actually met him at a conference that we did together. And I, you know, just thought he was great. And I think actually, as you were saying, finding people who are connected, you were sitting right in front of me. Mm-hmm. And I was saying how I was from New Orleans and talking about New Orleans, which I always do. And uh-huh. Jacobin turned around and goes, you're from New Orleans? I went to Tulin. Absolutely. <laughs> it's always a great uh, point of uh, connection right there because everybody can talk about. Everybody Google can talk about New Orleans who's been Cafe there. Mon and just like, yes. Yes. Instantly go back there in their mind's eye. It's but, bad. You know, I, you know these, these experiences out in the community, I, I really want to emphasize this point. It's, you know, I think everybody has a vision for their community. I really I do. agree with you. And I think it, some people don't know what it is yet. And well... I think the the challenge the the reason why perhaps people don't know what it is is because they think that there's something standing in their way. Yes, they, they think, think that someone else has to do something. They or, think that yeah. it's the responsibility of the mayor's office. They think it's the responsibility of the local council member. They think that they are not responsible. They believe that oh, it's going to be too costly. I don't have the money to do it. I don't have the resources. I don't have you know a tiller to build a garden. I don't know what it takes to, you know, get a permit to do this or that. I don't even know what a tiller is. <laughs> My point exactly. <laughs> right. And what we're saying about crowdsourcing is, you know, uh, you know, I don't even like describing third place as a crowdsourcing tool. That is just one tool in our quiver. Right. Um, but it is more about the wisdom of the crowds and saying that together, this village that can raise a child, you know, can actually produce a vibrant community for us all. It and sounds like more to, like you're creating community. Yes. I, that's that's what very, the website is. It's creating community. At a very high level, that is exactly what we do. And I encourage people to next time they are, you know, walking down the street, next time they're, you know, pulling into their their driveway or, you know, walking out for lunch from their place of work, look around. Is there something that you see needs to be fixed? Something that you would like improved? Something that's not there that you would like to see there? What about a billboard that speaks to the identity of your local community? In Venice, we have, you know, billboards of Tina Marie, a local, you know, music hero, and Morrison, right? You know, and that speaks to who we are as Venetians, right? Perhaps there's something, some iconography that you can put local to your community, you know, we've mentioned the the edible gardens. What about, you know, when it comes to work, what about alternative transportation, right? Perhaps your commute in L.A. would be uh, all the better, uh, less congested, uh, less financially costly if you were able to ride a bike or take your bike onto the metro. Well, you can advocate for, you know, that metro line to come to your local community. And the more people can, that advocate toward it, the more they're going to do it. Yeah, and what we find out is that when people you know, voice that kind of opinion, voice that need, that want, they are always surprised by how many other people have that same need or want, right? That's the wisdom in the crowds that we are trying to get towards, right? This matchmaking between those with resources and those with programming, that is part of it. But, you know, how is it that we talk about civic engagement? I don't even know what that means. Is it the rate of volunteerism? Is it decreasing crime and, and you know, getting you know more kids active volunteering before they go off to college I, I really don't know what it means but i know if we have a concerted effort or some place where we can aggregate activities and how this crowd is moving then we can begin to define these terms and, and we can all work towards you know the the improvement of civic engagement 
Well, I think also, like you said, a lot of people don't realize how many other people are thinking the same thing they're thinking. Absolutely. I mean, I know that I've heard probably every single person I know say, oh, if there was a, if LA had a better subway, because first of all, some people don't even know that LA has a subway. We do have one. <laughs> which I have ridden on many, many times. And when I tell people they're like in complete shock. Yeah. But um, pretty much every single person I know has said, Oh, if LA had a better subway system, I would use it. Well, write a letter to the city. Do something. Take action because nobody knows that until you say something. Yeah. Your representative at, you know, the municipal level, the federal level, that's what they're going to respond to. Some critical mass of letters that comes in and saying, oh, there's this pothole that needs to be fixed. But also go out and fix it. But also I think it's important for people to know that the most effective change that can ever happen is on the local level mm. because um, the higher up it gets and the, like on the federal level, the more bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And so people get really, really angry during the election <clears throat> or they get really angry at politics saying, well, Obama should do this or, you know, George Bush should do this X, Y, Z. Yeah. Well, you mm-hmm. and I can actually do something in a place that is going to affect us directly, which yeah. is our local communities. Yeah. And local government and local community is a place that you can actually direct change where you can physically see it happen. If you vote for an initiative in Washington, it may be 10, 15 years before you see it taking action. Yeah. But if you go into your local community and take action, you can see results within a couple weeks, a couple months. I think that's a very important point. People do feel disconnected as though their vote does not count or they don't see the effect of it. Same thing with, you know, their philanthropy. They could support a cause, but, you know, to what effect? Was this money spent on administration or was it actually spent on doing the work that I hope that it's going to Or was it spent stolen by corporate greed? I mean, sometimes people donate. There was a big scandal that people were donating money towards a tsunami and only 20% of it was going towards the victims. The rest of it was being, you know, administrative waste Mm -hmm. or other things like that. So, so this is an opportunity for people to actually take action. And I think, I mean, this isn't like a get out the vote, you know, mm-hmm. PSA, but I think that's why a lot a lot of people ignore uh, the local elections and focus on the big elections. You know, mm-hmm. they come out to vote for the presidential election. Mm-hmm. But the real votes that matter are for the local elections because those mm-hmm. are the people that are going to be representing you in Washington. Yeah. And I think the best vote that you can make, if not your electoral vote, um, if not the dollars, your consumer dollars and how you spend them day in, day out. Um, but it's in your actions. And it does make a difference because actually um, in a big, I mean, I, I don't support, you know, major, major corporate stuff, but in a big corporation like Walmart, Walmart has gone more uh, green and more organic mm-hmm. in the past uh, five, six, seven years because of the consumer dollars that have been spent towards that those purchases. Yeah. And this is a large corporation and people have enacted change within it because of the fact that people want organic stuff. Mm-hmm. And so when... Even though it's just one vote, it's still a vote and it matters. Yes. Your consumer dollars, like you said, and also your physical actions. Absolutely. It it, it definitely matters. All of it matters in the aggregate. Um, I think, you know, when I have conversations with our enterprise or corporate clients, they are looking for people within local communities taking these actions. Where are these gardens being built? That's what a whole kids foundation wants to know. So they can, you know, drive dollars to that local community. Who are these people within local communities that have done one or more successful gardens? I want to, they want to support that person, right? They want to find locals, you know, rise up as leaders and support them, carry out this programming. And the job that delights me at third place is saying, 
please, Rosie, focus on something that's local and take action. And you may think that, you know, your edible garden that you build is something that is only for your community of North Hollywood. Well, that's what we do at Third Place. We relate your garden in North Hollywood to my garden in Venice Beach, to gardens in, you know, South Bronx, to gardens in South London, all across the globe. So in the aggregate, we can look at these outputs called gardens and see if we are affecting outcomes. And are also we, are we inspire others. Inspire others. And are we really driving towards getting more people access to fresh organic food, decreasing childhood diabetes, decreasing obesity? increasing vocational training, increasing, you know, local economies all around gardens. If you simply focus on building yours locally in the aggregate, a tool like Third Place will help organizations like the American Heart Association, Whole Kids Foundation, which I've continued to mention, understand, wow, this is this is a need. And like you're saying with Walmart and how they've shifted towards some th- measures that are more green, these corporates are going to move that way too. That is awesome. Uh, we're going to wrap up. Um, do you have anything else to promote to Coven? Promote? No. To talk about and share and learn? <laughs> Absolutely. But we'll save that for another day. <laughs> That's funny. Um, it's third place with no I. No I. Uh, T-H-R-D-P-L-A-C-E.com. That's the one. And you guys can always visit me at outoftheboxpodcast.com. Guys, please go on Stitcher in iTunes and subscribe and leave comments. We love it. This has been Out of the Box. Thanks, guys. <laughs>